You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Have you ever just laughed so hard that your stomach muscles began to hurt and tears began to well up in your eyes? Have you ever just had hilarity come over you to the point that your face begins to hurt because you're in such a a moment of joy and laughter. If you have, then what you should know is that God invented that. Uh, God invented the body and invented the responsiveness inside of the body and the mind and heart and soul and spirit that would lead to laughter, that would lead to joy. And I mention that because Psalm 126 is a song that is filled with those very things, laughter, gladness, and shouts of joy. And all of that is found in this song because that is what God longs to give to his people. Now, up to this point, we've been going through the different Psalms of Ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And as I've been teaching them, I've been trying to teach them as a guide for the pilgrim life, a guide for the climb. Psalm 120 showed us our prerequisites for our decision, different things that we have to believe or hold to before we can actually embark on the pilgrim life. Psalm 121 helped us to remember that we must know that God will help us as we climb. Psalm 122 taught us to have a vision for the worship gathering of God's people. Psalm 123 helped us to develop an eye of hope. Psalm 124 helped us to remember all the times in our previous past life that God rescued us. And Psalm 125 taught us to be at peace due to our great position in God. But today in Psalm 126, if we're going to live the pilgrim life successfully, we have to recognize where true joy is found. We have to be able to look back and look around and look forward And know that our true joy is found in God. Now, joy is a truly Christian experience. I think Jesus tried to hint at this when for his very first miracle, he turned water into wine at a Jewish wedding feast. I think it was his way of saying that the best is yet to come. Judaism has been one thing. The Old Testament era has been one thing, but in God, in Christ, things get better and better and better until finally there's the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem for all of eternity. So joy is to be a truly Christian experience. The Christian life is definitely a life that is filled with burdens because we care for the lost in this world. We care for the brokenness that is caused by sin. 
and we care to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. But on the other hand, the Christian life is also full of extreme joys. And if we're going to live the pilgrim life, then we have to be convinced that the greatest versions of joy are found in Christ, in God. So, in verse 1, we begin the song. They sing, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And I'll just go through the psalm. It's only six verses long and read it in its entirety before going back to that first verse. But they continued and said, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now back to the first verse. One of the first things that we learn in these first three verses is that if a pilgrim is going to be convinced that their fullest joy comes from God, then they must learn to look back in their lives for those moments of great joy that God has brought them. Here in verse 1, they sing of a time when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion and in so doing made them, they sang, like those who dream. Now the question, of course, is when historically did this occur? When had the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion? Now, there might be the possibility of this being an allusion to the deliverance that God gave to Israel from the armies of Egypt, even though Jerusalem wasn't on the national consciousness yet. It was the faithfulness of God that he restored the fortunes of God's people. We might also think in our minds of the life of David, where he was given victory, not just for himself, but for all of Israel over the Amalekites and over Saul and over the Philistines and over Absalom and over anyone. David actually closed his life by singing, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. So David was a man who lived a life that experienced the restoration of lost fortunes at the hand or by the hand of God. But probably the historical scene that this fits most beautifully is when the people of Israel were brought back from the captivity in Babylon. You might remember that Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 44 and in Isaiah 45 100 years before King Cyrus was born and before King Cyrus's empire was even prominent and before the 70-year Babylonian captivity even occurred, God said in Isaiah 44 and 45 that a king named Cyrus would be raised up who would give God's people permission to return to Jerusalem. Again, catch that prophecy. It was given before Cyrus was born. It was given before they'd even left Jerusalem. 
and it was given before Cyrus's people were even a thing. So when Cyrus rose up onto the scene and commanded or commissioned that God's people could return to Israel and specifically Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, it was a time of great rejoicing that the Lord had restored the fortunes of Zion. And when that event happened or any of these events happened in all of God's word where the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, it is like a dream. So what does it mean to have our fortunes restored? What this means is that God brings back that which has previously been lost. This might take us all the way back to Adam, who through his sin caused mankind to lose his innocence, his relationship with God, his purity of motivation and heart. Because he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we now know of good and, unfortunately, of evil. But God has made it his mission to restore the fortunes that have been lost. He created us in a beautiful and good position, but God has been now on a mission to restore the very thing that we handed over through our great-great-great-grandfather, Adam. Luke 15 is a passage where Jesus told the story of the shepherd and going to look for the one lost sheep out of a hundred or the woman looking for the one lost coin out of ten or the father receiving the one lost son out of two. And in that cluster of parables, Jesus was communicating that God is on a mission to restore that which was lost. And he taught those parables, by the way, in the setting and context of hanging out with tax collectors and people that were considered sinners and hearing then the complaints of the religious leaders because he had done so. And he responded to them with those parables in order to communicate, look, you should be on the mission that God is on. God is looking to seek and save that which is lost. There is rejoicing in heaven over one person who repents and turns back to the Lord. So in the mega scale, we can think about having our fortunes restored when we think about our salvation. But for these worshipers in Psalm 126, it felt like a dream. And this is what happens. When God works in your life, it's like an alternate reality. There's a surprise that comes from joy. And I think that one of the first things a pilgrim must do in looking back for true joy is to realize just the wonder of it, the beauty of it. I can remember the first time I ever felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was during a worship service. I was a very young man. I wasn't expecting or looking or anticipating anything spiritual or powerful. And the Holy Spirit was just so there, so strong, so thick upon my life and in the room at that moment. And he gave me a release, a peace, a joy, a gladness like I'd never experienced before. It was it was like I was in a dream. And that dream-like state was so helpful for me in the years to come. Because as I chased down lesser joys, 
that greater joy was stuck within my memory, stuck within my heart. And so often we need to go back and to remember that first joy, to remember the victory that we received or the rescue that we experienced or the forgiveness that we previously enjoyed. Now the pilgrims continued to sing when in verse 2 they said, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Here at this part of the song, the pilgrims are looking back and they realize that was just such a beautiful time in our lives. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues were shouting with shouts of joy. It was just beautiful. And I think this is helpful to us because we often will look elsewhere for joy. Someone has said that entertainment is merely the purchase of someone else's imagination in an attempt to find joy. But the reality is that the best of food or art or cinema can never give a permanency of joy. Sports fans will have moments of euphoria as they shout for their team that they've followed. But it's not lasting. It doesn't stick. And we might look to entertainment or experiences or successes or people, relationships and sexual experiences to try to find joy. But the reality is that the truest joy is found in God. When God is working in our lives, it is the best of all joys. So we must look back upon God and the joy that he gives correctly. So often when we look back, we forget the joys of God and we forget the pains of sin. Often when we look back, we begin to memorialize our sin and we begin to give it a positive eulogy. You know, oh, remember the days kind of thing. But What the psalmist is singing is that, no, it was when God was doing work in our lives that we were so wonderfully blessed. Not only that, but the nations began to also take note. They said, verse 2, the Lord has done great things for them. And that caused the singers to say, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. You see, their joy became a testimony to the nations. When Nebuchadnezzar saw Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah survive the fiery furnace, that joy became a testimony to Nebuchadnezzar. When Darius saw the joy and the deliverance of God in enabling Daniel to survive in the lion's den, that joy became a testimony to Darius. And when Cyrus commissioned the people to go back to Jerusalem, when Ahasuerus protected the people of Israel through the intercession of Esther, when Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the commission to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, when all of these foreign kings behaved favorably towards the people of Israel, the nations knew at that point that God was with them. 
And as they saw the joy of God's people and then began to ask them, why are you so joyful? And they would give the response, well, Cyrus favored us or Ahasuerus favored us or Artaxerxes favored us or the fire couldn't stop us or the lions couldn't eat us. When that joy was reported, the nation said, the Lord has done great things for them. It is very important for our joy to become our testimony of God's power and of God's grace. There will be times, of course, that we are down. There will be times, of course, that we are hurting and in pain. But there are also times where we need to celebrate the great victory of God upon and in our lives. This joy, I think, is a powerful witness. It's an infectious attitude. Now, in verse 4, the song begins to change. You see, up to this point, the singers are just simply celebrating all that God has done for them, all the great things that God has done historically for the people of Israel. They're recalling it. They're reminiscing over it. Our truest joy has come from you. But in verse 4, we come to learn that the current situation was not a glad situation. They pray, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. They've already celebrated that previously God restored their fortunes, but now they are looking to God afresh in a new situation. They're saying, God, we've celebrated this for the past, but now we are asking it for the present. Would you, Lord, restore our fortunes? Now, in praying for that, They use an illustration, an image from their geography. They say, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev desert is a very dry place in southern Israel. And in and throughout it, there are these dry stream beds that because of the wind and then flash floods or moments that water is there during the rainy season, these stream beds are created, but then very quickly the land dehydrates and uh, the stream beds are there dry as a bone. So when the rain comes, the stream beds begin to fill up. The water knows where to go, but the psalmists are singing and saying, look, Lord, that's what we're like. We're in this dry, barren kind of time, but it's very clear where the water should go. And Lord, you can bring a sudden and quick and overflowing change upon our lives. You, Lord, can restore our fortunes like those streams in the Negev that are parched and dry, but then through a quick turnaround of a storm or a rainy season, are flooded and filled afresh. Lord, you can do that for us. And the pilgrim looks to God with this kind of anticipation. The pilgrim looks to God for this kind of joy to come flooding back into his heart or into his life. James said it this way in James chapter 5, verse 7. He said, Be patient until the coming of the Lord. 
Now, in illustrating that point there in James chapter 5, James gave three illustrations for the way in which we are to anticipate and wait for the coming of the Lord, the way that we're to wait for the grace and the reign of God's Spirit upon us. The first illustration that he used was with farmers. He talked about farmers who wait for fruit through the early and late rains. And for a pilgrim, this is what it's like. We are waiting, we are laboring, we are enduring, and we are looking forward to the time where fruit will come after the early and the late rains. We're planting, we're sowing, we're working, believing that there is glorious fruit that is going to come in the future. We also see the example there in James 5 of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So much of the prophetic ministry had a future fulfillment, a future audience. The present audience during the day of the prophets, they did not receive them. And the prophetic message did not find its full fulfillment during the time and the life of the prophets. It was something that was future. They were looking for it in the future. And then the third example that James gives is the steadfastness of Job and the purpose of God. You see, God in the life of Job was proving Job's faith, was strengthening his faith, and was taunting Satan with the faith of Job. But those were the short-run purposes of God. The long-run purpose of God, I think, in the life of Job was that God could say, This is how the story goes for all who believe in my son. Job had a beautiful beginning. He had a horrible middle, and he had an incredible ending. And that is the story of the human race. We've had a beautiful beginning, a horrible middle, and we will have an incredible ending because of the return of Jesus Christ. And in all of these ways, James tells us that we should be patient. We're looking for the Lord. We're looking for his grace. Like a farmer or like a prophet or like Job, we are trying to see the end where the stream will come into our desert place. Now, this might lead us to expectantly pray for God to bring streams to our desert. I think it's important for us to see that this True joy is actually found in the desert. A common tactic is to try to get out of the desert, to remove everything that hurts. But that leads to an unchristian life, a life with no faith and no no risks, no relationships, no sacrifice, no fellowship with Christ, because those are all possible pain pockets in a person's life. No, the disciple life, the pilgrim life says, I'm going to take risky steps of faith. I'm going to engage in relationships with others. I'm going to sacrifice and lay down my life. I'm going to enjoy the fellowship with Christ that comes through suffering. And I'm going to believe that even though there's the possibility of hurt and all of those things, that the Lord could bring streams into that desert experience. And I think that what we're seeing here is that we're to request this and to expect and anticipate 
this. You know, we don't know when that stream will come. But keep in mind, the Lord definitely does. Sometimes we use the phrase, the turning of the tides. Well, I'm sure you know that we are able to, on our calendars, put down when the tides will turn every day. When there will be high tide and low tide. And, you know, you can count on it. Months and years in advance, we are able to count on the consistency of these tides. Now, when it comes to the streams and the Negev, we don't know. But God knows. God has his tidal calendar that he is using in our lives. And to expectantly believe and pray and cry out to God that he would bring those streams into our desert is a, is a powerful way for a pilgrim to live. Now, finally, in verse 5 and 6, we get to these beautiful sentences in the psalm where they say, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This seems to tell us that the pilgrim understands that they, as they sow in tears and in weeping, will reap with joy. That somehow our suffering as pilgrims for the Lord will lead to great joy coming out and in our lives. Here, the picture is of a farmer sowing seeds. And the idea is that the pilgrim who is sowing seeds of tears and sowing the seeds of sorrow or weeping will one day reap a harvest, an armful or an armload of blessing, and they will shout for joy at that point. So the crop that is coming is an overwhelming sense of the joy of God. Now, of course, we know in the Bible that trials can lead to fruit in our lives. Romans 5, verse 3 to 5, James 1, verse 2 to 4, and 1 Peter 1, verse 5 to 7 all communicate that same concept. So you have Paul and James and Peter all communicating that fruit can come from our trials. We know, Romans eight twenty eight that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that because, well, we look at the cross and we see the worst lead to the best. We see the cross and we know of the resurrection. So if God could do that, then he works all things together for good. It's a model, a template for the way the Christian life works. But this statement here in this psalm seems to go even deeper. It's not just that God uses our trials. It's here that the tears are required for the fruit of joy. This is very important for the pilgrim life. Because sometimes it is painful and difficult to endure in prayer for a particular thing. Or to live a life of fidelity in a particular area. Or to pursue the discipleship paths that are 
presented to us or to parent or do marriage or ministry God's way. To deal with loneliness in a biblical kind of way. To deal with childlessness in a biblical kind of way. To deal with finances in a biblical kind of way. And there can be a weeping, a sorrow, a pain, tears that are connected to that. But to believe in the pilgrim life that if I sow in that way, then there will come a moment where I reap with shouts of joy. Do you have that confidence in the Christian life? Do you believe that the Lord is able and will, as you sow and reap the difficult things in life, do you believe that the shouts of joy are coming? Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. When a woman is in her third trimester right before giving birth, you don't say to her, I hope you have a baby. No, it's very obvious. A child is coming. You're confident that a baby is coming. And for a pilgrim, as we sow tears, as we sow weeping, we should have a confidence in our heart. There is a crop of joy that is coming that somehow is connected to this difficulty, somehow is connected to this pain. So this is a massive concept, I think, because when believers get in their minds that there is joy out there outside of God and outside of a walk with Christ, uh, then they begin to turn to all kinds of broken cisterns for their joy. But when we believe that our joy is found in God, in Christ, and in his ways upon our lives and for our lives, when we believe that and we're looking to him to provide us that joy and we wait for it, well, eventually we will come home with those shouts of joy, those armloads of blessing, as the message says, and we will rejoice at what God has done. Put your hope, put your focus, put your waiting for joy upon the Lord. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.